Hello and welcome to this April edition of the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you some of the highlights from the Faber catalogue. This month, both my guests are publishing their first books, and we cover a lot of ground from South America to Zimbabwe. Later in the programme, I talk to Oliver Balch about Viva South America. The question that I, I pose myself at the beginning of the journey and that structures the book is 200 years after independence, to what extent have the goals of the liberators, people like Simon Bolivar particularly, to what extent have the goals of, of, of liberation been realised? My first guest today is Zimbabwean writer Petina Gapa. Petina's debut collection of short stories, An Elegy for Easterly, has already generated a considerable amount of excitement. James Lasden, for example, writing pre-publication in The Guardian, praised its swiftness and lightness, and found in one tale a wild, cracked gallows humour reminiscent of Chekhov's peasant stories. When we met, we talked about that humour and how the writer can begin to do justice to the realities of Mugabe's Zimbabwe. But first, I wanted to know more about Patina's early life. I was born in Zambia to Rhodesian, at that time, Rhodesian parents. Uh, I was born in 1971. My father was working in Kitwe, which is on the on the copper belt, but he wasn't a miner. Uh, he was working in Kitwe, and he and my mother moved there, and I was born there, but we only lived there for about nine months. We moved back to Rhodesia, and so I grew up in Rhodesia and in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, and in Zimbabwe. So you've kind of seen all those transitions go through and experience them while you were young? Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons th- that I'm so fortunate as a writer, because I remember very vividly the day Muzorewa came to where we lived in, in the township of Glenora to campaign as the first prime minister of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. And then I remember just almost a year later, there were new elections, which Robert Gabriel Mugabe won. And I actually remember, again, him coming to campaign in, in, the, in the township where we lived. And of course, after that, we've had 28 years of of the same regime. In the book, mm. there are quite a lot of young people and uh, yes. your experiences are growing up. And I wondered what kind of what kind of education you had yourself. Right. That's actually a very interesting question because the experiences of all the young children in my book are experiences that I have had. I was educated in my first year of primary school at a segregated school in Rhodesia. It was a it was called a Group B school. It was only for African children, and then. In 1981, my parents moved us to a white area where we were one of three black families in our road. And at school, I was one of four black children in a class of 20. And remember, I'd left a class of about, you know, 40 people. So then I had that experience as well of being an outsider in, you know, in my own country and being, a, you know, looking like an alien because everybody else around me was white. Then I had this weird experience of losing Shona, losing my language, because we were not allowed to speak in Shona. So we we spoke only in English. And as a result, our own language sort of atrophied. And then I had the brutal experience of being taken from that environment to a mission school, which, you know, is where people like Robert Mugabe were educated. This, these were the, you know, African schools for children of sort of parents who were not all that well off. So I went to a mission school because my dad thought that it was the best school academically for me. And as it turned out, he was right. But there I had the problem that now I had to get back my language. And uh, it, it was pretty brutal because people didn't understand why a child from, you know, a child who was Shona could not speak Shona well. So I worked really hard at my Shona. 
language was one thing that I really wanted to ask you yeah. about, and I was interested to know what your your own kind of linguistic history was because yeah. your English is peppered with expressions from Shona, and so I wondered what kind of feelings you had about those two languages that are that are clearly very much part of your identity. Yeah, I think for for every Zimbabwean language. It's central to our identity because we are kind of schizophrenic in that sense that we express ourselves in our own languages, whether it's Shona or Ndebele or Ndau or Kore Kore. But at the same time, we have this official language that was imposed on us and yet it's ours. You know, English is our language. I, I no longer, and I don't think I've ever felt that English was foreign to me. Maybe, you know, in my first year of primary school, when English had a sort of a secondary role in my life, maybe it was an alien language, but because it's been such a part of my life, you know, university, when I went to university to do law, you know, we studied in English. Um, you pick up the newspaper, it's in English. Television is in English. It's it's become part of our of our language. And in fact, there's something called Shonglish. <laughs> and one of the it's sort of a mixture of Shona and English, and also in the English, and Devele and English. And one of the ti- one of the stories in this book is called "My Cousin Sister Rambanai." Now, cousin sister is a very Shonglish expression, because cousin is English, sister is a Shona concept. So, if you want to marry the two, my cousin sister, meaning the child of your paternal uncle, mm. that is Shonglish. Mm. You know, so that's how that's how Zimbabweans negotiate the English. There's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of mixing, there's a lot of moving of one concept into another language and so on, and mm. I, I think it makes for a very interesting, for a very interesting sort of linguistic culture. Mm. And in terms of your writing, most people will encounter lots of words they don't understand, and at first they might think this is a barrier, but in fact, I felt as a reader, if you go with it mm. and get into it, you you can un- you can understand the the gist of what people are saying or the context in which they're saying it and it's more than just a kind of sort of seasoning of of exoticism it seemed to me it seemed, i mean you can tell me if i'm right but it seemed to me this is probably in your head the, these are the kind of ways you're hearing things and it's not not something you're having to sort of slot into an english narrative exactly that's exactly what it is it's it's how you see the world i mean language is after all a key to sort of seeing it to a particular worldview and this is this is how I see the world. This is how the average sees the world. You see the world in both languages. And I have to say that when I was writing this book, I thought a great deal about this question you asked me about whether the Shona or the Ndebele would be a barrier to the person reading it. And I was greatly inspired by Vikram Chandra, his Sacred Games. He makes absolutely no concessions to the non-Indian speaker. You know, he makes, to the non-Hindi speaker, he makes, he makes absolutely no concessions. And then there's an, a writer I admire very much, Chimamanda Adichie from Nigeria. And it's actually from her that I, I got this way of um, writing Shona words into a sentence in a way that makes it very clear what the meaning is. So that, you know, you don't, imp- you don't impose that barrier. You present the, the sentence as it appears to the person who's thinking it or speaking it. But at the same time, it's perfectly clear and comprehensible to the person who's reading it. I wondered if in the way you had to be away from Zimbabwe in order to get some perspective on it, in order to write about it? Or could you have written this book if you were still living in Zimbabwe? I'm not so sure. There are many things that I I lose from being in Zimbabwe. But I think, you know, you're right. I mean, it's certainly true that uh, being in Zimbabwe probably gave me sort of a, a little bit more freedom 
to actually look at the situation more objectively than if I were there as an active participant, you know, in in, in the everyday life of the country. Um, I have many friends who are writers in Zimbabwe who are not writing, not because they are unable to, but because life for them is just so difficult and it's a constant hassle, you know, to get to get food, to get things. So for them, it's a little bit difficult to take themselves out of their reality. Whereas I think for me, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I've been able to sort of like look at the situation from the perspective of an outsider. And maybe that is what has enabled me to, to write. Mm. Yeah. I, d- I believe you've recently been in Zimbabwe yes. in the last few weeks. And I wondered with your sort of writer's eyes, if you've, do you feel that the situation in the country is is such that, as you were saying, you know, your friends who are living there have preoccupations, which mean they can't write. Is the situation kind of going beyond what you think writing can really readily cope with, or is that is that is that never the, the case, really? You know, I'm not sure that there's ever a situation that writing cannot cope with. I think what may be necessary is is distance. You know, I think. Uh, some of the things that are happening in Zimbabwe are just so horrible that it might not be possible to write about them right now. I mean, I have this idea that Zimbabwe is just the perfect place, the perfect setting for a comic novel. But the comedy is not just, it's not that funny right now. But maybe 20 years from now, it will be really brutally funny. Um, because there are just so many things that are so totally absurd. You can only laugh. There's a sort of a, a thread of comedy in most of what is being done, mm. you know, by Zanu PF. Uh, but at the ma- moment, maybe it's not it's not so funny, and maybe what is necessary is maybe a bit of distance. Humor was something that I did pick up on in the book that people tell jokes in the same way that people in the Eastern Bloc used to tell jokes in order to have a sort of re- release valve against the the terrible pressure that builds up and the you know that I think you describe. Zimbabwe as, a, as an amnesiac country and I suppose humour is maybe one way of preserving memory, of sort mm. of encapsulating it and mm. and having one little sort of act of resistance even when you can't um, you know, resist in any other way. But, that, but it, that's the thing, I mean it's so true what you're saying and I think the comparison with um, sort of the communist bloc is particularly opposite. I'm always amazed at the number of AIDS jokes I hear in Zimbabwe. And now recently in December, because of the cholera epidemic, there are a number of cholera jokes. People do use humor as a sort of release from stress, as you say. But I also think that we're just very funny people. I just think Zimbabweans are incredibly funny. In fact, sometimes I think that we spend so much time, you know, amusing ourselves that we don't actually give much space to actually releasing ourselves from from our own oppression. But I, I think, you know, this is one of the things that has kept Zimbabwe normal. The fact that people can actually joke about situations that are, you know, at the bottom of it, not all that funny. I also wanted to ask you about the first story in the collection at the Sunday of the Last Post, because what I really liked about that was you had chosen somebody as an outsider, South African, as the narrating voice, and yet she was very much woven into the fabric of the regime, but could see them, you know, from the inside and from the outside. Tell me, tell me how you, um, how you developed that idea. How did you come up with that? Actually, this uh, woman, this narrator, she's, she's not alone in being a foreign woman married to a Zimbabwean politician. 
there are quite a lot of them and this is where I got the idea from because um, a lot of current ministers and you know Politburo members were in exile during the 70s and they were in exile in you know places like Jamaica and Europe and South Africa and in Zambia no not not South Africa sorry in Zambia and Mozambique and that kind of thing and they met local women there and they married them and th- this is one of the absurdities of of Zanu PF that some of the ministers with the most rabid anti-white sentiments are married to white women you know so this is one of the one of the, th- the things that struck me and I wondered you know what would it be like for an outsider who's now really given up her in her whole life in the country as she was born in what would be what would it be like for that person to be married to a Zanu PF top heavyweight who's who dies suddenly and she's left with nothing really because she can't go back home and yet this is not really a home how does she negotiate that situation and then of course uh, I actually wrote this story I started writing it on Remembrance Day 2006 on the 11th of November because I heard that bugle you know it's it's just a wonderful sound very very sad very haunting and it's a bugle that is very very familiar to anyone who's grown up in the commonwealth because that's a, the last post is a it's a very familiar tune and i immediately started thinking about heroes acre it's a sound that you know we we hear almost every year when a hero dies and is buried and the president says his his uh, says his the eulogy so i started thinking about that and that's how the story was born mm-hmm. and then of course there are all these rumors about how uh half the people who are supposed to be buried at Heroes Acre are actually not buried there so i started to play with that idea a little bit something not so intimately connected with the the political regime in zimbabwe is the the sexual politics between men and yeah. women in the book and the view that i got from it was quite bleak really that men tend to have sex at every opportunity and aids is the price and the price is often paid by women and women have to put up with pretty poor treatment at the hands of these men who've you know keeping mistresses or sleeping with prostitutes well it's it's interesting you say that because uh one of the there's a doctor i was calling my liked in in the herald who had this line that i i really liked and i thought it was very true he said um at the vanguard of the aids epidemic in zimbabwe is an army of married men we have a system of polygamy in zimbabwe There's official polygamy where a man is actually allowed to have more than one wife and then there's the unofficial polygamy where a man gets married in church but he doesn't quite want to give up you know the traditional perks you know the perks of being a traditional African male so he has a one woman on the side and the woman on the side is usually called a small house or imbadiki and in addition to the small house he usually has one or two girlfriends as well and then there's his secretary at work mm. and this is what i'm trying to to show in this book as well that you know we have all these economic problems created i think uh, mainly because of a corrupt and inept regime but also we have deeper problems deeper social problems which curiously enough this government was trying to address and this is one of the ironies that the mugabe regime actually ushered in an era of sexual equality for women until 1980 black women were not considered capable of entering into contracts on their own behalf they had to you had to do it through your father or through your husband if you were married 
And because of the Legal Age of Majority Act, any person in Zimbabwe attained majority at the age of 18, and that had a ripple effect on the laws that affected women. And then we had uh, recently, in 2007, there was a new Domestic Violence Act that, that was introduced because domestic violence is a very big problem in Zimbabwe. And these are all acts introduced by by this regime that, you know, is otherwise so bad for the country. So again, these are some of the, the curiosities of Zimbabwe. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think that we do have a problem in the way that men view women in Zimbabwe and... Uh, Many of the stories that are that that I write about come from sort of my my observation of the inequality between men and women mm. in in Zimbabwe, yeah. and I think this is something that we are going to have to think about even after we attain this you know glorious paradise, because it's a, it's an issue that is common to all societies, and Zimbabwe is is really not unique. Yeah. I, I suppose what I'm saying is, I thought it'd be a pity if your book was seen merely as sort of symptomatic or merely expressive of some of the effects of Mugabe's regime. But in fact, it went much, much further and and said things which, you know, are are about relationships between families and men and women and all sorts of other things. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's conflict between brothers and sisters. There's, you know, conflict between husbands and wives. There's jealousies. There's, you know, ambitions that are not fulfilled. And all it is is that this is taking place against the backdrop of, you know, hyperinflation and political sort of... uh, a strangulation of, of Mugabe's Zimbabwe, but otherwise these are just stories that could happen anywhere really. You know, they're just stories about people. The setting might be a little bit different to what the average reader knows, but these are still the s- stories about human beings trying to negotiate what it means to be human. Patina Gappa, an elegy for Easterly, is out in paperback on the 16th of April. My second guest today is Oliver Balch. Oliver is an independent journalist based in Buenos Aires who writes on South American affairs for The Guardian. In order to write his first book, Viva South America, Oliver undertook a mammoth journey the length and breadth of the continent. Towards the end of the book, he atomizes his journey. 67 long-distance buses, 18 flights, 9,578 photos, 105 hotel beds, 29 notebooks, hundreds of local buses, scores of metro stops, 16 tram journeys, dozens of taxi rides, 11 trips by rickshaw, innumerable interviews, 8 nights in a tent, 5 days in a canoe, 4 boat rides, 3 trips by cable car, 2 lost memory sticks, and 1 dinner of boiled Bolivian sheep's head. The result of all those miles, and the encounters he has along the way, is a wonderfully detailed portrait of a continent, of its grim realities, and also its signs of hope. I asked Oliver how his fascination with South America began. I spent a year when I graduated from university learning Spanish in Bolivia and working for a charity. I think Spanish actually was one of the first things that drew me to the to the continent. I spent almost a decade learning Latin and Greek at school and I was determined to find a language that was alive rather than dead. And I'd been to the Dominican Republic for two months during my undergraduate course doing a, a social project there and had, had fallen in love with the language about the colours and the and the romanticism as well. I love the literature of South America and Marquez probably more than anyone drew me to, to the continent. So I spent this year in Bolivia and at the back of my mind was always thinking of ways I might be able to go back for a longer term, make a career of it. At the same time I was working in, in business ethics for large companies in London on issues regarding environment or workers' rights or this sort of thing, human rights issues, none of which 
um, were taking place in in London, but all in in Southeast Asia or China or in Latin America in many cases. And I thought for my credibility, I ought to actually go and and see some of these things um, firsthand. I chose Argentina for a number of reasons. One, I got married in the process of being in Bolivia and deciding to move back, and I had to persuade my wife. And Argentina is one of those uh, bridge points between Europe and and South America. It's uh, especially Buenos Aires, a very livable city, and culturally more European perhaps than uh, the High Andes, for example. So. That was one reason. I was, was I was very attracted to the post-crisis story there in Argentina. For the 1990s, it had been the poster child of the Washington Consensus, uh, the notion of, of privatising everything and, and, and the private sector bringing ruthless efficiency to everything. And that imploded in 2001 from a business perspective and an economic model that interested me. But also, and more importantly, the cultural response from Argentines. I thought it, it was an experience like the Blitz in London, that it touched everyone's lives, rich or poor. And some people came out, you know, the rich who had their money stored off, off seas, came back actually in, in better shape once the peso had devalued. But it still was a universal experience. And, and the example of Argentines in responding to that I thought was fascinating. So I went, I went primarily to Argentina to work as a, a correspondent, to have a go at that, and to find out more about this fascinating culture. Is my impression correct that it seems to me that we in Europe know more and more about India and Pakistan and China and so on, but South America really remains surprisingly blank in most people's perceptions. I think that's very true and quite frustrating as a journalist because there's some great stories there. But once you filled the paper with your Iraq story and your US story and your your Paris or your Madrid story and whichever African country is going down the pan, uh, there's not much space left. And so I think there's a space issue as well. People are fascinated by it, but not sure really where to where, how to get in there, how to enter it. And so it, it does tend to be a continent of stereotypes, I find. And, and living and working in Argentina, uh, you can write countless articles on Maradona or the Falklands or Steak, but try pitching something on work a revolution or something like that. It doesn't have a cowboy in it. You're not going to get very far. In fact, Bolivar, 200 years ago, said it was a continent shrouded in darkness. And that's still the case today. And the, and the hope with the book was to try and lift up that blanket and see what was underneath it. You pursue lots of questions in the book about economics and race and politics and the lot of women. But I wondered if there was one kind of impetus that drove you to undertake these travels and if there was one sort of overarching question that you wanted to to satisfy your, yourself mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. The question that I, I pose myself at the beginning of the journey and that structures the book is 200 years after independence, to what extent have the goals of the liberators, people like Simon Bolivar particularly, but um, San Martin in Argentina, to what extent have the goals of, 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 of liberation been realised? And the reason I, I asked that question was to try and understand why Latin America was voting in these left-wing populist presidents, in particular Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. But uh, I was I was pitching the book in 2006, where there were 13 elections across Latin America, almost all of which seemed to be going left in one shade or another. And uh, it struck me that, that they were obviously tapping into some sort of frustration, some sort of tr- struggle, that when, they, when their leaders came out and talked about the imperial north and uh, grabbing multinationals and this sort of thing that that was resonating with with these voters and I wondered where that was coming from and this character Bolivar and all that he stood for helped me I think uh, 
to ask that question. Um, and Chavez as well is, is, is a key player as far as understanding the region, at, at the, the climate at the moment, political and social climate. I went to a, a speech that he gave in 2005 in a football stadium in a place called Mar del Plata, and he, he quoted a poet, a Cuban poet, who's the inspiration for Fidel Castro in many senses, called Jose Martí, and the phrase was, the hour has come for the second independence of the peoples of the Americas. And uh, I thought, second independence, hang on, but, you know, they got independence 200 years ago, what's this second independence? So it's the broader fight for freedom and liberty and fairness, those enlightenment goals that the liberators like Bolivar stood for. And, and so that idea of a second fight for independence was, was, was what led me to all these different places and what brings those disparate themes, as you mentioned before, of race and women and indigenous and economics or whatever, and brings them together. See, so you had this very big question, and then you had a whole set of other questions which are, are also substantial, and you had a vast continent. So how on earth did you begin to plan what you were going to do and who you were going to see? How did you mm. sort of bring some coherence to this big question? I started with this theme of independence, and I thought, well, what themes to tap into that, that, that struggle for independence, and whether it's be, be race relations, whether it be the uh, uh, in, indigenous issues, whether it be women, whether it be human rights abuses, whether it be violence, whatever it might be. And then I thought uh, which countries those themes resonate with most strongly. And coming back to that point before that it's a continent of stereotypes, I like the idea of picking countries that were particularly known for one thing and then turning it around and this, this idea, this struggle thing helped. Chile was a good example of, of that in that uh, it's known as a very conservative country, a very Catholic country, and this is model of what women are about set largely by the religious right. A, a woman's role is to be subservient and uh, look after her husband, basically. And overlapping that as well is the whole thing about uh, Latin American machismo and the, and the strong man. So I approached it asking what's the model that Chileans have in their heads of what, of what women, the women's role is, is and gender, and, and then looking at what the reality is. I, I'd heard that HIV cases amongst women were, were increasingly were going up for a number of reasons. One, because their husbands sleep around and don't tell them and therefore kind of bring it back into the marital bedroom, so to speak. And the other is that many, being, being openly gay in Chile is very difficult and many gay men marry because that's the social pressure to do so and have extramarital affairs and get infected and then the women get infected. But not only that, but this, the, the fact that there are no women, almost no women publicly who, who say they're HIV positive is a hidden story, partly because there's a shame uh, related to it, but partly because it's a, it's, a, it's a gay men's issue, but it's a men's issue. And the idea that women might have HIV as well, again, is, is one of those, those things that, that Chileans don't want to, to talk about, really. Approaching it with that, with, that, um, with that mindset of saying, here's a stereotype, here's a country resonant with this particular theme, and then, and then actually digging a bit deeper was interesting. I mean, in the case of Chile, I should say that they have a female president who's doing a lot on women's rights. So that's not a stereotype. I mean, that that you know, there's something substantial there as well happening. It, and in Chile, you go to a, a a lesbian wedding ceremony, and that seemed to me kind of emblematic of what you found in many countries that there were there were green shoots of change or the prospect of things changing, and yet um, you write about how the the very language that people use in Chile is imbued with, with sexist mm. terminologies, the, the, the structure of how people mm. think and speak. Mm. And that seemed to me quite emblematic of what you found often, that there was an impetus for change, but there was a very heavy weight of vested interest to fight against. 
I, I guess, I mean, the remarkable thing about that is that people do, still do struggle. I was in India last year visiting a friend of mine who had been working in, uh, in Argentina with grassroots political groups in, in the shanty towns around Buenos Aires, and his wife got posted to India, so he went with her. Uh, and he was hoping to get involved in similar sort of projects in, in the um, low-income communities there. And he was pulling his hair out after a year because Indians, he said, well, in many cases, are much more resigned to their fate. In Latin America, regardless of the obstacles, people are still still get up and they and they fight and they struggle. And I think that's what that spirit of of, of revolution of, of of changing your circumstances despite the odds is a remarkable thing about about the region. One of the things I took away: they, the the revolutionaries aren't Chavez and Morales. They are, but the real revolutionaries are the people that wake up in the morning and go out looking for job, or set up their own business, or leave that husband that beats them, or leave that brothel where they're, where they're stuck or you know, in radical cases or, or just carry on going from day to day against the bureaucracy and against the corruption and against the violence around them against the lack of education the lack of health care and still fight You talked about wanting to get away from the stereotypes and I, I really appreciated in the book the quality of the human encounters you had I think that's the thing which will stay in my, my memory really is the people you met and you met an extraordinary gallery of, of people from all walks of life, from all races, all conditions. Presumably, some of that was serendipity, and you could you couldn't really plan it, and you couldn't you couldn't sort of force them to be representative of anything. You were just you know letting their their own humanity come across. Yeah, and it was the most exciting thing. I mean, in terms of writing the book, the most exciting aspect of it, and the most revealing aspect of it. I work as a journalist. But the way that news journalism works is that you more or less know the story you've got to write about, and you know the two or three commentators you've got to phone up and get your quote from and you structure it like that and in, inevitably that's how news journalism works you don't have long to do it but there are set spokespeople you go to the NGO leader or the politician or what have you and the joy of this book it gave me space to get off that track and go and talk to people and when you start talking to people you find they have fascinating stories and if you come as a foreign journalist to someone that's never spoken to a foreigner let alone a foreign journalist and you show and you express an interest in their lives. They'll, and in Latin American, they'll sit down for two, three hours with you. They invite you back to their homes, and it's very network-based society as well. So, one person will tell you he's got a cousin, who's got a friend who you can put you in touch with, and you just have to turn up and knock on the door and say, you know, Jose sent me. And they might sometimes not even know who Jose is, but they, they, they as long as you have an introduction like that, it was a, it was a revelation for me, not just as a as a as a journalist, but as a person. The the stories that that people have there. The, the book gave me an excuse to be nosy and to go into people's homes and put myself in places where, I, where I've never been. I went to a swingers bar, for example. It doesn't appear in the book for reasons of matrimonial edits. But um, I met with uh, victims of HIV, as I was mentioned. I went to a, le a lesbian wedding. Those are things that I, I haven't done in England. I'm sure I could, actually. I'm sure I could. It, it, it's opened my eyes to, I think, the stories that there are out there. So it's a very enriching experience for me as well. And I was also impassioned by by the idea of giving, it sounds moralistic, and I, I don't mean it to be that way, but by, by giving people that don't have a voice a voice. Obviously there are millions of people that aren't mentioned in the book, but the people here, no one's ever heard of outside their village quite often, or their family, or they're never gonna appear in a newspaper. And giving them a voice and having them speak about their realities. I think we'll even teach Latin Americans something about, about kind of their own continent sometimes. Um, in, in much ways, if, if someone had done that in the UK and told me what it was like to live on a council estate in Bristol, you know, I've never been to a council estate in Bristol, yeah. that would be, it would be revealing. So, yeah, I, I, the human interest was, was the thing that I, 
I thought would convey the message most, and, and it's the story. It's the story of Latin America, it's the story of the people of Latin America. The book, as we've been saying, is full of, of stories which are grim and about the abuse, mm. the abuses that people visit on each other, but also of stories of, of great resilience and, and struggling on and fighting on, mm. as you said. And I wondered, at the end of the book, whether you felt more or less optimistic about the future for South America than you did at the start. I try, I'm, 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 again, I'm glad you, you picked that up because there are poorer places in the world and, and life is grim in lots of places. I think what stands out about Latin America or South America is that people will keep on getting up and fighting. What will happen in South America in the coming years is very difficult to tell. I think the economic crisis is going to hit them quite hard. Uh, countries like Venezuela. Venezuela has had this, this oil boom over the last 10 years. Well, it's enabled Chavez to do a lot of the things he's done. And maybe, maybe looking at... at uh, at the Venezuelan experience will be interesting to work out just how ingrained these these new political experiments in, in, in South America are. For example, you run something called the, the missions, which are like social projects essentially, which have which have garnered a lot of attention at some criticism, but basically they're 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 common sense school policies if you've got suddenly a, a cash a, a, a cash haul from your oil to give it away to, to people that are going to support you and, and when he doesn't have that that money from the oil those are going to slow down what's more interesting I think in Venezuela is this notion of participative democracy that he's got small communal groups in neighborhoods that are taking responsibility for their own development and giving small amounts of funds and becoming empowered essentially and you don't know where that's going to go but once you do feel empowered and once you are given uh, the opportunity to make a difference, rather than just complaining the politicians are useless, they're corrupt uh, and can't be bothered with it and resigning to it, if there are mechanisms whereby uh, South Americans are feeling empowered and have the, a vehicle to, to change their situation, it could go anywhere. So don't expect Bolivia to be off the bottom of the economic scale in 10 years' time, but do expect perhaps Bolivians to have more confidence about the ability to change their own personal circumstances or those around them. Changing the structures and the and the institutions is a, is a much bigger game, but I, I think I came away with, with, with great confidence because of the courage and the spirit that I saw in those individual people that I met as I travelled around. Oliver Balch. Viva South America is out now in paperback. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can make sure you don't miss future episodes by subscribing at iTunes. It's free and it's easy. Just type Faber in the search box on the iTunes homepage and click on the podcast subscribe button. You can find out more about the authors and titles featured in this podcast on Faber's website at faber.co.uk. And you can hear both this month's featured writers reading extracts from their books there. You'll also find a host of other author interviews, readings and features. I hope you can join me next month for another Faber podcast. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.